America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great nation that is still reeling from the horrific and racist shootings in uh, Buffalo that occurred over the weekend. They occurred on Saturday. The President of the United States and his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, they made the trip to Buffalo today. The President spoke there. He was generally sympathetically received. Uh, everybody reeling. The Mayor of Buffalo, Byron Brown, and you may remember that he was uh, one of those people who was victimized himself by uh, an attack by an extreme leftist. And no, I don't mean a physical attack. I shouldn't lead any confusion there. But um, Byron Brown, who's been mayor of Buffalo for some 25 years, he, um, he had been challenged in a Democratic primary in this last election and lost to a uh, radical candidate named India Walton. And, uh, but he ran anyway. He ran basically on a write-in, and he won. And it's a good thing, too. He's handled this extremely well. Moments ago, Mayor Brown spoke about the shooter's hatred that led to the death of 10, a total of 13 people injured, uh, 11 of those 13 black. Here is Mayor Brown. Uh, the, uh, the level of hatred in the heart and head of this individual is is stunning. Uh, it's staggering to know that that kind of hate, that kind of evil, that kind of premeditated evil exists in our nation, exists in the state of New, New York. I think much more has to be done about social media and hate speech on social media, hate speech that comes out over our airwaves. Uh, the president uh, touched on that. The president spoke about that. And I am hopeful that more will be done to prevent the proliferation of hate on social media. One of the things that is so striking about the hatred on social media that he's talking about is they have now gone through his 180-page manifesto, so-called, and most of it is plagiarized. It's plagiarized from that Australian killer in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, who attacked a series of mosques and also was motivated by what is called the theory of the Great Replacement. And is the theory of the Great Replacement really as dangerous and as sickening and as wrong and, yes, evil as people are making out? Yes, it is because it was cited very specifically by a range of killers. There's also numbers today, new numbers, about political violence and extremism. There are 450 cases uh, that have been documented uh, in the last year, uh, thus more than one a day, of, of violent attacks, and 75% uh, of those cases are right-wing violence. The left-wing violence exists. It is not comparable. That is a point that is made in a, a study published in the New York Times. And sure, the New York Times is ideologically motivated, but if you take a look at some of these, these deadly series of events, 
uh, it's it's very tough to see anything comparable from the center. I mean, centrists are too busy trying to figure out <laughs> where where you stand or to uh, engage in violent attacks. But uh, this sort of violence is something that uh, people on the right, people of conscience, who are 99.99%, I believe, I hope, of people on the right, uh, ought to make it very clear that there is no place for this kind of ideology. This is uh, what the president sounded like today in uh, Buffalo making uh, his speech about uh, the murders that occurred over the weekend. President Biden. What happened here is simple and straightforward. Terrorism. Terrorism. Domestic terrorism. Violence inflicted in the service of hate and the vicious thirst for power that defines one group of people being inherently inferior to any other group. A hate that through the media and politics, the internet, has radicalized, angry, alienated, lost, and isolated individuals into falsely believing that they will be replaced, that's the word, replaced, by the other, by people who don't look like them and who are, therefore, in the perverse ideology that they possess and being fed lesser beings. I and all of you reject the lie. I call on all Americans to reject the lie. And I condemn those who spread the lie for power, political gain, and for profit. That's what it is. Okay, obviously what he's talking about there when he talks about people purveying it for profit is uh, some of the commentators, and there are some on the right who have championed this idea of the great replacement, that there is a conspiracy, that conspiracy usually is associated with Jewish people, which is why this has a, an anti-Semitic theme to it, and uh, that people who deliberately are trying to extinguish the traditional uh, white population of the United States. And this, of course, is also associated with the idea that uh, basically a critical race theory, which is a real factor in American life and a very negative one, uh, tries to make the case that white people should feel guilty for just existing, for breathing, for taking advantage of anything. And a part of what this also is responsible for is on the left and on the right there have been too many claims about the disappearance of uh, the white majority in America and and all of that is wrong it is based upon the idea that if you have somebody who is oh say one-fourth Latino he's not white which is of course ridiculous and the entire idea that ignores the fact that in the last election, about 70% of people who voted were white, the fact that America remains a majority white country, and that, uh, yes, there is a great deal of intermarriage, which would indicate that there is not this great 
and deep and profound enmity between whites and blacks and people who are Latino and people who are Asian. Uh, there's this more from President Biden recalling his involvement in this entire matter, uh, beginning with Charlottesville. Uh, this is clip B. We've now seen too many times the deadly and destructive violence this ideology unleashes. We heard the chants, you will not replace us in Charlottesville, Virginia. I wasn't going to run, as the senator knows, again for president. When I saw those people coming out of the woods of the fields in, in Virginia, in Charlottesville, in Charlottesville, carrying torches, shouting, you will not replace us, accompanied by white supremacists and carrying Nazi banners. That's when I said, no, no. And I, honest to God, those who know me, Chuck, you know, I wasn't going to run for certain, but I was going to be darned if I was going to let anyway. I'm going to get going. I'm going to get going. The, uh, the president had more to say. We'll hear some of that. There is discussion about this. Also, his family is speaking out for the first time, the shooter's family of Peyton Gendron. And uh, he's 18 year old, and uh, they don't blame themselves, the family. What do they blame? Uh, we will let you know. Uh, we'll also talk about why is it that some countries did so much better against COVID than we did? Coming up on the Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, we will get to your calls in just a moment at 1-800-955-1776. Uh, I wanted to play one more comment by the President of the United States. Joe Biden was speaking uh, in Buffalo. He was speaking emotionally. Uh, the local officials who everyone horrified, of course, by this a completely needless death, uh, especially given the fact that there were officials who had actually examined uh, the killer. This is less than a year ago when he had indicated he was planning to uh, commit a mass murder and suicide at his high school. And uh, what happened is when they investigated him over that, when he was referred, he, he did that, gave that answer as part of a school assignment. So the school did the right thing. They notified the authorities. And they apparently did an interview with him. He said he was only joking. And they basically forgot about it. Here was a clip 21C, the president today speaking about the problem of white supremacy, which was uh, one of the ideologies that clearly motivated uh, the shooter in Buffalo. Listen. White supremacy is a poison. It's a poison running through, our, it really is, running through our body politic. And it's been allowed to fester and grow right in front of our eyes. 
No more. I mean, no more. We need to say as clearly and force as we can that the ideology of white supremacy has no place in America. None. And look, failure for us to not say that, failure to say that is going to be complicity. Silence is complicity. It's complicity. We cannot remain silent. And uh, no, uh, Americans should not remain silent uh, on this issue, but they also should should not exaggerate the the importance or the power of white supremacist ideology right now in this country, which generally is considered totally unacceptable and, of course, should be. Let us go to Michael in uh, Redmond, Washington. You're on the Michael Medved Show. Well, uh, Hi, Michael. I'm, you're on. I'm not Michael. Oh. Well, the, uh, who are you? Oh, I'm Jim in Portland. Oh, okay. Hi, Jim. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm joining you just a few minutes late, but it, uh, what I heard really gives me a jolt. Michael, I, I think there's not a problem in seeing the outside of a person. There is a problem of not seeing the inside of a person. You know, our our nationalities and stuff, they're descriptive, not definitive. And I, I, I think if we – I suppose we go in and out of focus on uh, on this. You know, we, we tend to go from uh, – what would you call it? Uh, uh, generalization to overgeneralization. But I think if we uh, – try and keep this in mind this would solve an awful lot of stuff to 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 see the human being on the inside first you know the personality the soul uh that that solves a lot of problems right well again part of what is uh, the problem with specifically this great replacement theory saying in the great replacement theory is that people of color, and particularly uh, immigrants, black people, others, who are not white, are actually being manipulated uh, and being used, uh, not out of their own evil, but out of uh, their own desire to survive. They're being manipulated by uh, evil elites who are trying to install them to replace white people so they will have permanent political control. If you look at the 180-page manifesto that was written by uh, Peyton Gendron, the the shooter, what he is saying is not that uh, necessarily people of color are evil, it's just that they're inferior, which kind of makes it even... Uh, worse than evil, and that uh, they they are threatening to exterminate uh, the white race. He was one of the things he was involved with was uh, the fourteen words. He had it, one of the things that was written as uh, rifle was the number fourteen, and the fourteen words are words that were uh, originated by. A uh, white supremacist, that David uh, Lane, I believe it was, who um, was responsible for the murder of a 
talk show host for the crime of being Jewish. Uh, there's a talk show host uh, named Berg who was shot to death in Denver coming out of his studio. In any event, and what the 14 words say is uh, we must defend the white race and the existence of white children. And it often goes together. There's a combined number of 14 because that's a 14 words. I'll get them right for you in a moment. And uh, they're combined with the number 88. So you have 14 and 88. And uh, that's supposed to be 88 is eight, uh, the letter H is the eighth letter of the alphabet. So 88 stands for Heil Hitler. And that's the kind of nonsense that, that we are dealing with. And and yes, of course, it uh, goes far beyond any any kind of identification with skin color as uh, an indication of either uh, a guilt or, uh, God forbid, inferiority. Uh, we will get to that and how, frankly, um, the uh, the need for public rejection of the Great Replacement Theory. It's a conspiracy theory. And it's an incredibly stupid one that has zero, zero basis for belief or credibility. We will get to that. Uh, somebody who certainly knows that and recognizes it is Dr. Mark Esper, who was the Secretary of Defense in the last stages of the Trump administration. And he has a new book, which is a startling view, actually, of the... Uh, Trump administration uh, during the election campaign and then after the election campaign with the beginnings of the Stop the Steal movement leading up to the grand finale of the attack on the Capitol building. We'll be speaking with former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper about his new book, Sacred Oath. Ultimately inspiring, by the way. Uh, Mike Esper, Mark Esper, coming up. There's a remarkable new book uh, that has been making uh, a number of headlines. Headlines because of some of its revelations about the final stages of the Trump administration. Uh, Mark Esper was our Secretary of Defense, and uh, he was uh, somebody with a uh, very distinguished military background, and he believes that it was actually the character formation that he received at the United States Military Academy at West Point that allowed him to survive and to prevail, ultimately, some of the difficulties that he encountered in the Trump administration. The book is called The Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times. Uh, first of all, Secretary Esper, let me congratulate you on the book. Well, thanks, Michael. I really appreciate that, and thank you for that kind introduction. Well, again, uh, the book actually kept me up late last night, in the middle of the night, reading it, because um, just uh, trying to read about and imagine your experiences. Y you say in the book that 
you were not ever worried about being fired. You ultimately were fired by President Trump. Uh, you were worried about being fired too soon. What did that mean? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. And that's, uh, I give you credit for picking that sentence out because I thought that was an important part of that chapter that I wrote. And uh, what it means is this was, you know, after the events of June 1st, uh, when the president was asking for 10,000 troops to be deployed to the streets of America and then, of course, suggests that uh, protesters be shot, uh, I, I realized that my, my higher duty now became not resigning, which I considered and pondered, and I talk about this a lot in, in the opening pages of the book, but to but to really hold on, stay in the position, and do everything I could to advance a positive agenda I had within the Pentagon to modernize our military, to uh, face off the Chinese, to build our cyber capabilities, et cetera. But on the other hand, to make sure I could uh, push back on bad ideas, dangerous ideas, to to reshape uh, what I thought was uh, bad policy and those types of things. So my, concer my concern of, was not that I would be fired as I pushed back, but to think about how I did that in a way that I was not fired too soon, and too soon being prior to the election on November 2nd, because what I felt that I had to do at that point was to get at least the institution of DOD uh, to that point without any politicization, without any misuse of the military, and so on. And, and so I talk about through various chapters, this walking through this minefield, as I describe it, uh, through the various months of the summer and the fall, to get to November 2nd. And then ultimately, of course, I'm fired on a, a week later, on November 9th. All right. One of the things that is very striking in your book is uh, you don't seem to be some kind of rebel against uh, conservative orthodoxy. You, you come across as um, patriotic, uh, conservative. You mentioned several times your great admiration for President Reagan. Was it ideas, uh, differences in policy, or temperament that you believe represented the greatest dangers of the Trump presidency? Yeah. Again, a very good question. You know, I consider myself, as you know, a Reagan Republican. I think you're a fan of the 40th president as well. Um, Absolutely. He inspired me to go to West Point. And then, you know, my first job out of the military, I worked for the Heritage Foundation, which was his think tank, right, a conservative, established think tank. Uh, and then worked on the Hill for a number of conservatives um, uh, in Congress. So so when I looked at the Trump agenda, it was a, a lot of traditional uh, 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 conservative agenda items. And I, I helped write the platform in 2008 for Republicans. So I know what that looked like, you know, lower taxes, less, less regulation, smaller government, conservative judges, border security, rebuilding the military, which was very important to me. So I didn't have issues on the policy side because – uh, for the most part, he, 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 the president, pushed those things and and made had success, but in too many cases went too far, and we can talk about that. Uh, my issue became more uh, more of temperament and the, the judgment that took him too far in some of those areas that I just fundamentally disagreed with. And so that was became increasingly more of my concern the longer I served in office. Well, one of the things you write about, and it's one of the things that kept me up. I mean, literally, we're talking at three in the morning, uh, reading a sacred oath. It's it's posted on our website at michaelmedved.com. Was we have a traditional, and it's part of your sacred oath, 
uh, di- divider between civil authority, which is elected, and uh, our military establishment, which is responsible for protecting our nation and defending us. And uh, it seems that y- there were legitimate concerns that President Trump was going to try to use the military uh, as part of a grand scheme to overturn the election. Was that a concern of yours? Well, first of all, you're right about the, the role of Secretary of Defense and the, and the respective roles of the institution of DOD, the military in particular, and civilian authority. And my, my challenge is straddling that divide with one foot in the military camp and one foot in the political camp as a political appointee and making sure that I led the institution in an apolitical manner on one hand but was conscious of the politics on the other. And, and that was a challenge. And, of course, I you know, grew up in the military, if you will, professionally, but spent, had spent the last 10, 15 years of my life in, uh, in the civilian side, a lot of time in, in politics. So as we get into the fall, I've become increasingly concerned that the military might be used in some way, shape, or form, either to create some type of event externally where um, the country might rally around the president uh, momentarily because of some military action. And then as we crept closer to the election, uh, might a situation evolve the day after the election where either President Trump wins and uh, protesters come out in the streets and he feels inclined to use the military against them in a very rough way, or he doesn't win and, uh, you know, there's some of these harebrained schemes to seize ballot boxes uh, using the military or, or and then run a re-election. Things that we learn about later in December, late December, that, that folks, um, uh, some folks were planning. So, those were things I had to keep in mind, and you know, my job as Secretary of Defense, and, and by nature, I try and stay two or three steps ahead of the situation, and so I had to keep a careful eye on those types of things and make sure I was, uh, you know, planning appropriately. And uh, you saw the early stages uh, of what became known, at least to uh, a lot of people in the center and on the left, as the uh, big lie. The uh, idea that President Trump did—did did you have at any point uh, any serious doubt about the election being free and fair? No, I, I really didn't. When you see the numbers, I mean, I think there were what five states in which there were challenges. Uh, I, I think President Biden had won in both the popular count and electoral count, but you'd have to check me on that. And look, there's there are always accusations of some type of um, you know fraud, but. The, I, I'd seen that before, going back, of course, to um, you know the George W. Bush election in 2000. And so, presidents in the past have challenged things here and there in the courts. I think that's the you know the way to handle it. And, and I thought it would play out that way, but quickly be dismissed. And the things people would move on. The president would concede, and we'd have a normal transition. And that maybe that was a little bit naive. But no, I didn't see it coming the way it evolved, the way it did. In fact. On the Monday morning of my dismissal, I, I, what I said to my team that was gathered was, uh, you know, the, the election had not yet been called, that we should anticipate a Biden win, and that I want us to lean forward and have the best transition possible so that, um, you know, the new, the new administration can hit the ground running. Not because I voted for Joe Biden. I, I didn't, uh, and not because I'm not a Democrat, but, you know, we have this thing called a transfer of power, and he won, and you, 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 for the sake of the country, you want to give them a fair start. And so that's what, what uh, about how I ended my. And we will get right back to Mark Esper, the author of A Sacred Oath. It's posted on our website. It is a fascinating and important book. 
Uh, how does what he learned pertain to the future of American politics, which deeply involves Donald J. Trump? Uh, we will get to that and more with Mark Esper, former Defense Secretary, coming up. Sacred Oath, uh, a new bestseller and revelatory. If you did not know about the Trump administration plan, which thank God was never executed, to uh, use American missiles to knock out some of the uh, drug dealing by Mexican cartels with the belief that no one would understand that they actually came from America. Well, we had a Secretary of Defense who was sitting there to uh, basically rein in uh, schemes like that. In, in his book, A Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times, Mark Esper writes, um, my four years at West Point provided the foundation that would allow me decades later to stand up against a president who undermined our nation's institutions and traditions, had little respect for truth or propriety, and put himself above everything else. The Academy's purpose of developing leaders of character who valued integrity, put country and mission first, and as the cadet prayer asked God to do, make us choose the harder right instead of the easy, easier wrong. All ran counter to Donald J. Trump's way of doing business. Now, given the fact that you write those words in this book, I would take it that uh, you're not going to be participating in the Trump uh, campaign for restoration in 2024. Yeah, no, that's that's correct. I will not be, and uh, I hope he doesn't run. And not just that, I hope he stays out of it, uh, out of the election in terms of trying to uh, endorse a candidate if he decides not to run. But uh, again, I, I know that's probably hoping for too much. I just, the message I'm trying to get out now is for Republicans uh, like myself, and particularly if you're a Reagan Republican, is to say, look, we can we can find a candidate to, who can advance all those traditional core Republican principles and objectives that I spoke about earlier, smaller government, stronger military, uh, lower taxes, et cetera, but do so with a leader who will put country first, who will have integrity, and who will bring Americans together, who will unite us and grow the political base, uh, the Republican base, because look, you can't govern, govern and you can't ap apply those core conservative principles if you don't win elections. And what happened in 2020 is we lost the White House, we lost the Senate, and we never reclaimed the, the, the House of Representatives. So uh, we need somebody who can win and can and can win with a positive agenda and can win in a way that will bring the American people closer together. That's my hope, and that's what I'd like to work for. And one of the things you do in your book, you, you acknowledge that there were certain things that President Trump accomplished that you give him great credit for, uh, including the decision, and was a tough decision, to take out uh, Soleimani, the uh, Ira Iranian terrorist chieftain, the head of the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, was was that um, uh, was that something where you worked together with President Trump on reaching that decision? Yes, we did. He he was the one that actually put that option on the table, and we assessed it and 
and supported it. And I thought that was a bold decision by him, uh, just like I thought, you know, his endorsement and support for Operation Warp Speed was very important. I mean, it delivered two vaccines in time. And and again, he was successful in lowering taxes. He put a lot of conservative judges on the bench at multiple levels. So the Trump administration is not without its, without its successes. It's just at times the president would go too far. You know, I believe that our allies should share more of the burden. Um, but I, I wouldn't threaten to withdraw from NATO or from our alliance with the Koreans. And it was just cases like that where things just went too far. I, look, I believe in law and order, right? Traditional Republican value as well. But you have to balance that with empathy. And you can't – law and order doesn't mean you call active duty troops into the streets of America. So it's just example uh, after example like that where I just saw President Trump going too far. And when you talk about going too far, the the book includes uh, stories about how close we came to a war in Korea, which you speculate could have been worse than the original Korean War in terms of losses and bloodshed. How did that manage to be avoided? You know, Michael, I still don't have the insights on that. A couple of people have asked me that uh, on the side, and I, it's not clear to me. But what I describe in the book is I become Army Secretary in late uh, 2017. And uh, when I arrive at the Pentagon, we are preparing for war. The United States Army is preparing for war. And about a month or two later, I'm in Alabama, and we get this phone call that the president is about to announce the withdrawal of, uh, of Americans, at least uh, uh, DOD family members, from the peninsula. And as I write in the book, I don't know how this happened, how it began. I'm trying to find out what's prompting this, this evacuation, because I know that when you do something like that, it sends all the signals to the North Koreans and others that, you know, we're on a war footing and war footing and something may happen. And uh, about an hour or so later, I get the word that it's it's all called off. It's not going to happen. And, and to this date, I, I have no idea. But I surmise, based on my experiences later, that the president or someone around him came up with this idea to withdraw Americans from the peninsula and uh, had talked him into it. And this was gaining some momentum at the White House until somebody interceded and, and walked him back. And, you know, people were not considering the second, third and fourth order effects. So it was that was just conjecture by me in the book. But it's stuff like that that I would see happen later during uh, my time as SecDef when I'm in some of these meetings and I could see how the back and forth of, of such discussions. Yeah, and I should mention in the book that you served with distinction as Secretary of the Army before you went over to DOD to Defense Secretary. Um, okay, you, you mentioned before, and I, I heartily agree with you, that uh, it's very important for some fresh leadership for the Republican Party. I'm not going to ask you who we should be looking for but what we should be looking for. What kind of qualities, what kind of characteristics uh, should conservatives, Reagan Republicans, uh, as you would describe yourself, I'd describe myself, uh, a Reagan Republican should look for for the uh, next leader of our party? Sure. Good question, uh, Michael. I, I think if somebody has to advance core conservative uh, principles, uh, that drive a good conservative policy objectives, and we've talked about those a few times. I think next you have to have somebody that clearly puts, you know, country over self, that they've d demonstrated integrity in office. Uh, peculiar to where we are today, they have to show a lot of daylight between themselves and Donald Trump. 
And I think lastly, they have to show the capability to grow the Republican base and by extension, unite the American people. Because my concern right now is that uh, the greatest threat facing our wonderful, wonderful country is the extreme partisanship on both sides of the aisle that's creating dysfunction in Washington, D.C. And, you know, Ronald Reagan was all about uniting the American people, about talking about the vision of it of that, uh, you know, city on the hill uh, and, and shining city on the hill. And that's what we need to get back to is a leader who will unify us, more of us at least, and get the country moving forward and not stuck in neutral, which I fear is where we are right now. Uh, Mark Esper, I know you have to go, uh, but people can pick up this book and find uh, either a surprise or an insight on every single page. The book, again, is called A Sacred Oath. Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times. And one of the things at the very end is uh, something in itself very extraordinary where nine living Secretaries of Defense uh, basically put out a uh, joint statement together, including the late Don Rumsfeld and uh, people who served in Democratic administrations as well. And uh, it really talks about calling on the higher angels, better angels of our nature. Again, Mark Esper, I hope we'll have you back on the show, and I wish you great success with the book. Uh, and we'd love to have you back to talk about more of the aspects and some of the surprises that uh, became very clear in the account of his service in the Trump administration. Part of what we're talking about, about bringing the nation together, uh, that's uh, what's lacking is trust. And there's a terrific analysis about why it is that Australia, of all places, Australia ended up having much less than one-tenth the death rate uh, from COVID-19 than the United States. That actually, if we had had the same rate of uh, death and suffering, from COVID-19 as the nation of Australia, which is a nation of 27 million, uh, we could have saved the lives of 900,000 Americans. So what went wrong? Uh, we will get to that. We will also be talking to Ian Rowe, a marvelous scholar for American Enterprise Institute who has been on this show many times. But he has a new book called The Virtue of agency. And what does that mean? It means that uh, you don't blame the system and you don't blame the victim. You take charge of your situation and that certainly is the tradition and the need for this greatest nation on God's green earth.